Hey there, listeners. Welcome to Horror Movie Club, the show where two dudes who are not quite nerds but not quite noobs choose a horror movie each week to rate and review. I'm Brian, I'm on the phone with Ashvin, and today we are talking about Anything for Jackson from 2020, directed by Justin G. Dyke, written by Keith Cooper, starring Sheila McCarthy, Julian Richings, Constantina Mantelos, and in this movie, a grieving couple dabbles in Satanism to try to get back someone who they have lost. If you're new to the show... We are going to talk a little bit about the background of this movie. It'll be spoiler-free for the first 15 or 20 minutes, but after that we will play our little musical transition and that's when you know we're headed into spoiler territory. So if you haven't seen this movie yet, uh, you can hang with us until then, but at that point you should stop and go watch this movie on Shudder. Ashvin, you ever seen a reverse exorcism movie? No, I I wasn't even sure what that was. Wait, what is a reverse exorcism? (laughs) <laughs> I think it's essentially if an exorcism is trying to get a spirit out of somebody, a reverse exorcism would be trying to get a spirit or soul into somebody. Oh, interesting. But in an exorcism, you're usually trying to get like the devil out of somebody, right? Yeah. Yep. So I guess you could be trying to get the devil into somebody or uh, someone else. It's not always the devil, though. Sometimes it's a lesser demon. Oh, yeah. Yeah, right. I guess you have uh, different uh, people in there. That's true. Uh, or even cool. the spirit of somebody who, uh, of a person who once lived, I think even we've seen in some movies. Yeah, like The Conjuring and stuff. I was it, was that like a person that possessed her at the end? I think so. I already forget. Yeah, <laughs> that's a bad sign. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, that, that, that's really interesting. The whole idea of like pulling people out or putting someone into someone—that that's pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, I almost feel like it could be a, a trend or something. Maybe the start of a new weird little subgenre that we see a film of every year or two from now on who knows yeah i mean this can't be the first one we've seen where they've tried to put uh like a demon or some kind of entity in like what about like house of the devil like what isn't that what they're trying to do with her oh there you go yeah sure yeah very similar right they're trying to get it get her to give birth to uh, the devil or some kind of entity yeah i was like googling reverse exorcism movies and i think maybe it's just the first time that this phrase has been put together uh yeah. maybe it's not even but um yeah, I kept thinking, I we've had to have seen this before, but yeah, everywhere I saw it, they were acting like it was a novel concept. Still a good original idea, but yeah, yeah House of the Devil kind of is doing that. Or Rosemary's Baby, even. Right. Yeah, exactly. So I chose this movie because it was a lot on a lot of top 10 lists from 2020, and it's been buzzed about a bit in our Discord server, so I thought we'd better check it out and see what the fuss is about. That's awesome. I, I hadn't heard about it at all. That's, that's crazy. Did it make like yeah, some that, uh, wait, top list for last year then? It did, yeah. That's great. Cool. Yeah, so it's a Canadian horror film and a Shudder exclusive. It's got a critic score on Rotten Tomatoes of 98% with a user score of 69. Yeah, that's um, crazy. And Ashwin, considering the creation of, of this movie that many consider one of the best of 2020, were you surprised to see that the director and writer worked together on a ton of family movies, <laughs> Christmas movies, and made-for-TV movies before making one of the best horror movies of 2020? Yeah, that is so wild. I mean, we've seen directors come from, like, comedy and stuff and, and uh, knock out horror. But yeah, these guys just had a bunch of uh, Christmas films, and then this is the first horror film they're doing? That, that's so yeah, bizarre. I mean, yeah, and I don't know if they worked together on all those, but definitely at least a few. Um, and I, in an interview with the director, he said he had, yeah, made at least like 30 movies or something. And I think he said his record was like eight in a year. Wow. Yeah. So and he's most just cranking these out. Mostly like holiday films. 
Yeah, it's like holiday films, Hallmark movies. He mentioned one a couple of times about a kid playing soccer with a monkey. Oh, yeah. <laughs> something in the middle, like a monkey in the middle or something. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah. yeah, that might have been what it was called. Can, can you imagine that? Like, I feel like uh, holiday films are hard enough to watch sometimes, like especially the Lifetime ones, but like having to direct those and so many of them, that sounds terrible. <laughs> right. But I think a lot of directors, and it sounds like he was as well, are just grateful for the opportunity and they can hone their skills and get paid to do what they like to do. And, it, you know, gives them one opportunity, begets another, begets another. Yeah, he's got like a really great attitude about it and like kind of inspiring story. And I, I saw he's like saying, yeah, just being able to work on set and stuff should be like an opportunity people look out for. Um, did you see that interview where he was kind of saying this still felt like uh, like this film feels like his first real film while he was like creating products for other people? Yeah, like he the first time he felt he really had ownership and otherwise you're kind of making it for a network and they've got a certain thing in mind or whatever. Yeah, that's really cool. I, I really, uh, yeah, I feel like that's a very really, like relatable thing. A lot of people can, I'm, I'm sure, like relate to. Yeah, indeed. So that was cool to hear. And uh, and is this applies to both of them, right? The director and the writer. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I believe so. Got it. Dude, do you feel like we are seeing, and maybe it's just that I'm getting older, more older folks as main characters in both horror movies and film in general these days? You know, that's one thing that surprised me about this one, because I, I feel like you don't see a lot of movies with the older people. Uh, which ones are you thinking of? Well, what got really got me thinking about this is that just I just watched Nomadland with oh. um, Frances McDormand. Yeah, I really want to see that. Yeah, and I mean, she's getting older now, and most of the other characters in that movie are older. And then the movie we watched prior to it, which kind of like jived well or mixed well with it, was... oh. I can't remember the title now, but it was a documentary about that retirement community in Florida called The Villages. Oh, yeah. I saw a trailer for that. Yeah. Was that good? Yeah, yeah it was pretty good. Yeah, okay. It wasn't awesome, but it was good. Darren Aronofsky, right? Oh, was that him? It might have been. I feel like when you, I saw the trailer, his name was tied to that. You, you might be right. Um, And like Relic, even... I don't know. It, it just seems... Surely if you contrast it with like 80s teen slashers and the late 90s, early 2000s slasher boom, then yeah, it is older. But if it feels like middle-aged people and older are the main characters more frequently than ever before. Maybe it's just my imagination. Like Relic. Right. Um, trying to think of other examples. I mean, a lot of the horror films I feel like we've watched are like, yeah, mostly like kind of older people. Like 30s, 40s, right? Like not like teenagers, basically. Yeah. Hunted down. Right. Yeah, and this couple in this movie is probably late 60s, early 70s. Yeah, yeah. I, I was thinking that in relation to the directors of the films we're watching, that I feel like a lot of them are like in our age group, like 30s, 40s, or like uh, on the older side of millennials. And uh, I was wondering if, if it's just like a natural thing where like as you get older, you end up watching more films by people of your generation versus like uh, watching films uh, that were like directed by like up and coming newcomers or something. But I, I, do you think that plays into it at all? Yeah, maybe. I mean, and I think it's just the target market, too. Like, we all grew up watching horror movies, and mm. may maybe there's just, like, this really big market of people in their 30s, 40s, 50s who are still watching horror and want fresh stories. Oh, yeah. Yeah, right. 
That, that's interesting. Do you think, uh, are there directors, like, I don't know, like, in, in their 20s that are, like, making movies geared towards, like, uh, yeah, I, I don't know, like, people in their early 20s, late teens or whatever, is that still, like, a segment for horror films? Um... Yeah, I'm sure. Like, look at uh, the Craft remake or the Black Christmas remake. That, that Those seem kind of more like teen or early 20s oriented, didn't they? But aren't they pandering towards people who saw the original uh, to some extent? Like, is is, uh, is like a, a kid going to go see like a, the Craft remake because their parents are raving about it or something? I think the kid might choose to on their own based on the trailer and also maybe knowing that it has a little bit of street cred because it's based on an older movie and they're maybe hoping to pull in some of those parents too. Oh yeah. Yeah. No, that's smart. Yeah. And then who knows, who knows like who they, or do, do we know who is like getting casted in those? No, I don't know <laughs> their names. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's weird. I, I, I hear you. There's like a generational thing and it feels like we're growing up like with movies that are kind of following like your age. Uh, and I, I just wonder if that's selection bias or if the industry is actually moving there. Yeah. I mean, think about like in the Your Next episode that we recorded last week, we were talking about the mumble gore genre, yeah. which tends to follow people in their like mid to late 20s who were kind of like aimless and in between phases in life those movies were big in the what mid 2000s and yeah. here we are 10 or 15 years later so right right it seems only natural not that every movie now is is from that mumble gore but there are certain certainly generations of fans and generations of directors who are aging together i would imagine yeah yeah i know that seems really weird doesn't it like what what are the chances yeah but i guess i, and guess I mean unlike uh you know, there's certainly ageism in Hollywood when it comes to actors, but I'm guessing for directors and writers that ageism doesn't apply as much and is kind of seen more as um, wisdom and an experience. Sure. Yeah. Uh, right. Right. But, but I feel like there's got to be uh, a cutoff like 10, 15 years from now. Uh, you're not going to have the same people or right? you're going to have another group of like 30s, 40s, right? Kind of writing and producing films. Yeah, Sure. Sure, but I mean, you still you still have older directors working today. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's true. Coen Brothers, Steven Spielberg, none, none of them are getting any younger. Yeah, that, that's a good point. They're all still kind of holding their weight, PTA, all that stuff. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's um, a really good observation. But I thought that was really unique about this film, though, to have the two main characters. Like, yeah, I, I know you're right, like Relic and stuff, you, you have like grandparents and stuff. But I can't remember like another film where your two like main characters are like uh elderly individuals can you um horror film no i can't think of that off the top of my head i always wish i had prepared examples when i come with these questions to pose to you sure <laughs> yeah yeah I, I, no, nothing comes to mind immediately i'm, I'm sure we'll remember it later yeah but... what we do in the shadows or not what we do in the shadows um we are still here oh did did we see that one I can't remember if we saw that together, but I feel like it was kind of an aging couple. Oh, okay, okay. Um, I think they were coping with the death of their adult son. Interesting. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Kind of similar then, huh? Yeah. And that had Barbara Crampton, who was also uh, kind of a, a matriarch of a family in your next. Oh, cool. Wow. Nice. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's cool to see movies uh, w with, like, a different age group at the center of it. I like that. Or, yeah, or even Hereditary, like, Tony Collette's son was in his, like, mid to early teens. Like, the 
most horror movies are about kids his age, but it was yeah. about her, really, you know? Or if it's about parents, it's about parents with really little kids, like yeah. Pet Cemetery or The Shining or something like that. Right, right, yeah. yeah. I feel like parents are, are kind of like a go-to, right? Because uh, yeah. they're the ones that have to be scared for their kids and stuff. Yeah. Makes sense. Or even The Lighthouse, one of the main characters, was a pretty, uh, pretty old and weathered Willem Dafoe. Yeah, yeah, right. Right, playing a uh, playing. Yeah, I mean, there must have been like what a 10, 20 age, twenty year age gap between him and the other guy. Yeah, yeah. All right, I'm just pulling things out my ass now. So, um, I will say that there are supposedly three hidden ghosts in the movie. Did you find any of them? They were hidden. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so n- not the ones like you see on screen. There were there were like no, three other. They ones? were kind of like I think it was the ones you see on screen, but they're hidden in the background in a few shots. Oh um, no no I, d- I don't think I caught that. I had heard that and was tempted to watch the movie again. I do think I found one of them in in a uh, a mirror in the background of one of the shots, but I can't oh, be okay, positive. Okay. Yeah, there are a lot of like creepy things going on in the background of this film. But. Yeah, and I mean they really the cinematography really. Uh, worked well with that just kind of lingering on certain things and uh really making this space of the house creepy yeah yeah that's very effective house uh, I, th- I think it was like a, a friend's house too right it was the writer's house the whole anything inside a house was filmed in either the writer's house which was like the main house or the director's house oh wow that's awesome yeah yeah i, I imagine this was like a pretty low budget film overall a pretty diy it was yeah, it, from what I understand, it was. Um, I think they were pretty pumped to grab the actors that they did, who I had frankly not heard of before, even though I I surely know their faces from some of their work, but I think they're pretty big-name actors in Canada, and that's part of the reason they are Canadian actors is because it saved them the money from flying in people from L.A. or whatnot. Oh, nice, nice. That's convenient, yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah, same here. I, I didn't really recognize uh, anyone, but uh, it sounds like at least the the two leads, Julian uh, Richings and Sheila McCarthy, like they've done like a handful of pretty like well known works, like The Witch and Umbrella Academy. It's pretty big names. The Witch. Yeah, I guess Julian Richings. I think he's in the opening of The Witch when like they're still in the town or something. Oh, uh, okay, interesting. The character there. So, but yeah, otherwise, like I've never seen any of these people. Right, right. Yeah, Sheila McCarthy, like, she, she's been in a lot of work and I think has earned her chops in titles that we're not super familiar with, but yeah. some of her bigger name titles are like Die Hard 2, The Day After Tomorrow. Yeah. Um, Julian Richings, I think his face was so familiar to me from A Christmas Horror Story, though I'm not sure who he played in that. Oh, yeah, he was in that, right. Yeah, yeah. I don't know who he was. Um, and one uh, not a familiar face, but a familiar body was Troy James, who uh, <laughs> plays a bendy ghost. Uh huh. His body is familiar. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's been in The Void, Channel Zero, Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, Rabid uh-huh. remake. Um, yeah. He can basically just contort his body in all sorts of creepy ways. Oh, really? He does that for real? Yeah, that's all real. That's insane. Wow. Yeah. What a what a talent. Indeed, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, I feel like uh, Whitney from uh, Lights Camera Knows is going to be upset that we didn't recognize Sheila McCarthy. Just because she's in Umbrella Academy. Oh, that... yeah. Okay. You're right. She will be yeah. angry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, maybe just at me. Uh, well, do you, you don't watch that show, do you? I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I, I feel like I've seen a few episodes, but uh, that's about it. Cool. Well, there's not much background on this movie, man. Anything else before we head to the Ohio Connection? 
Uh, no, they, I, I couldn't. Fi- you can't find any like budget or box office, right? I didn't see any budget um, because it, all I heard was it, it was a low budget movie, and yeah. there's no box office because it was a Shutter exclusive. It's yeah, it, it screened at some film festivals, but as yeah. far as I know, right now it's only released on Shutter. I've got some mixed feelings about that Shutter exclusive thing. Like, it's cool they're giving a platform for like so many great movies, but then wh- how many people are going to see these? I feel like it's pretty limiting, right? Yeah, maybe it's limiting, but also Shudder has a pretty big uh, subscri- subscription base now. They're oh, growing. Yeah. I don't know what the number is, but I remember recently hearing it and being like, all right. Yeah, yeah I, I, mean, I guess. It's millions. Yeah, no, that's that's cool. I, I just feel like only, only like diehard uh, horror fans have Shudder and like your general audience who might, you know, like put on a bird box on Netflix or something isn't going to be like, uh, you know, yeah, they're not going to come across this. Right, but I also don't know if this movie has as much mass appeal as something like Bird Box. Yeah, it doesn't have. There's no Sandra Bullock, that's for sure. Yeah, it doesn't have as many recognizable faces. Mm. Um, that's true. Yeah, frank, frankly, I mean, not to not to proliferate this, but it doesn't have those like young, attractive star power <laughs> actors, you know. Yeah, um, yeah, and it takes a certain type of fan to watch films that don't star those kind of actors and horror films that don't star those yeah. kind of actors so maybe Shudder's the right place yeah. but my mixed feelings about stuff like that is just you know the more streaming services pop up with exclusive films it's like you have to subscribe to infinite yeah. amount of services to watch everything yeah yeah and I know like I feel like I feel that on the music thing sometimes and now like yeah movies it's feeling like that too yeah yeah I mean at least we can take comfort in the fact that I'm not sure that many horror services will be able to create something that competes with shutter at this point. yeah yeah let's hope not i but can't imagine knows. another one. yeah yeah no shutters have uh, done a pretty good job uh, and they've only been around for what like four or five years it seems like it i'm not sure what the number is but that's that feels about right yeah great good quality content on there yeah uh okay man well i'm gonna hit the ohio connection before i do i've got a weird random announcement if you're listening to us on Spotify, it's recently been brought to my attention that our episode on The Exorcist that we did in October of 2019 isn't available there. Mm. I don't know why, and I'm going to work on it, but if you want to listen to that episode, you'll have to find it on another podcast player. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah, I don't know why. I'm going to dig into it. Do you can do like a reverse exorcism and get that back on Spotify? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm going to I'm going to put a breathe a new soul into that episode and put it back out there. That sounds good. Actually, uh, if you uh, if you want to listen to that episode, uh, it's I, I think you can just look up the song uh, WAP or whatever that song is and uh, that's going to be where we're going to breathe that into, right? <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> what just happened? <laughs> like you know you know that Cardi B song WAP or whatever? Yeah, I know it. Yeah, so we're going to re- reverse exorcism uh, our episode into that song. Sound people go to listen to that song, and they're going to hear uh, our episode on exorcism. Oh, okay, so every time someone plays that on Spotify, it's actually, they're going to be incredibly disappointed. <laughs> yeah, incredibly disappointed, but mildly entertained, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we couldn't be less wet. <laughs> the driest thing. The driest. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay, well, 
every episode, folks, we have our friend Alex connect each movie we watch to our home state of Ohio for us. Alex owns the Jukebox Bar and Restaurant in Cleveland, Ohio, so be sure to go check them out when they open their socially distanced patio later this spring. And Alex says, Anything for Jackson is a film about a satanic couple attempting to resurrect their dead grandson. The grandmother is portrayed by longtime Canadian actress Sheila McCarthy. McCarthy is one of Canada's most honored actors, having won two Genie Awards for film, two Gemini Awards for TV, an Actra Award, and two Dora Awards for her work in the theater. Her credits include high-profile films Die Hard 2, The Day After Tomorrow, Confessions of a Teenage Drama Queen, and House Arrest, a 1996 comedy starring Jamie Lee Curtis and Kevin Pollack. This film centers on two kids who want to discourage their parents from filing for divorce by locking them in the basement to work out their differences. This film, also starring actors Jennifer Tilly, Wallace Shawn, Jennifer Love Hewitt, and Christopher McDonald, is set in Defiance, Ohio, and principally shot in my hometown of Chagrin Falls, Ohio. That's oh, Alex's cool. hometown. Nice. That's awesome. Yeah, pretty rad connection. Yeah. Have you seen that movie? I have, but as a kid, I haven't seen it in probably 20 years. Yeah, yeah. At least classic. 25. Sure. Yeah, I didn't realize that was shot in uh, Sugar and Falls. That's wild. Yeah. Cool. Now we know. Yeah. Good connection. And now so do another 500 or so people. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> okay, buddy. Let's start heading into spoiler territory. We'll run through the plot points, reviewing the film as we go. But first, man, I've got something like lodged in my gums or something. Do you mind if I take a quick break to go floss? Oh, sure. Yeah. Go for it. Cool. Sorry if that was TMI, but uh, I'll be right back. All right. Okay, man, I'm back. Hey, you get it out? Yeah, so I figured out what was lodged in my gums there. It turns out it was my teeth. Oh, man. <laughs> so I flossed those puppies right out, right onto the floor, and I'm ready to do this. Nice. <laughs> you got them all out of there. You feel better now? <laughs> I'm teethless and dry. Nice, nice. The way it was meant to be. Man, that that was so hard to see visually, like uh, that, that scene of someone flossing and pulling their teeth out. That's... Yeah, that was just wonderful in <laughs> all the wrong ways. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that sticks with you. Yeah. Messed up. Uh, okay, well, this film begins with an older couple having a mundane discussion in their kitchen. This is Audrey and Henry while they're eating breakfast. And then they suddenly realize uh, what time it is and someone's here. We don't really know what that's about. They go to their door and then the camera just kind of hangs on the open door for a while. Their open front door. And then in they come dragging this woman. Henry's got her his hand over her mouth she's kicking and screaming they try to like hit her a couple times to calm her down they throw her into this elevator in their home and we see the elevator go up and then we cut to the title screen and Ashwin I thought this was kind of a hell of a first three minutes but what did you think yeah man same it goes from like zero to 60 in in just like a a second like it's the last thing you're expecting and as you said it's like a very mundane conversation and just so like matter-of-factly suddenly they're bringing in someone that they've just like uh pulled off the street I mean that's that was wild yeah, such a contrast. And I really love how when, you know, we're seeing them, they're likable, they're mundane, and then they go out there and the camera just stays right where it was. We see their whole kitchen and the open door in the background, and it just hangs there for a while and it builds this tension and it gets you to start thinking like, okay, <laughs> something's not right. Yeah, yeah, right. 
Yeah, I know, I know. And, and uh, I think what's also cool is, like, there isn't, like, a lot of production behind it in terms of, like, there isn't, like, very suspenseful music or anything, but, yeah, you're just staring at this, like, empty doorway, and, like, it lingers there for a while, which, like, starts to uh, feed the doubt. But it's just, like, so real, I guess, in, in the way they shot it. Yeah, I agree, and I think that becomes kind of a, a trait a positive for the movie throughout is a little bit of subtlety. Yeah. Especially yeah, for right. the content subject matter of this movie. Right, yeah. I think that goes a long way here. So I believe the next scene after the title card is the wife, Audrey, sitting there with this woman, I think who's just known as Becker, Miss Becker, who is chained to the bed with a gag in her mouth, and the wife is calmly reading her this script that they've prepared beforehand. And I think, Ajvin, this is where you start to see like a bit of a dark comedy tone to the movie, but also kind of like how fucked up it is. Yeah. Like she's kind of struggling with her reading glasses to go through this letter <laughs> and she'll be like, okay, I, I don't have to, we already went over that part. So we yeah. can be fine there. <laughs> and yeah, it's just kind of like, um, these simple things happening in an outrageous situation. It, it had like a Coen brothersness to me or some, something it, like that it really did yeah like they nailed these uh characters it really was like watching their like, grandparents or like your parents trying to like follow this list of like how to kidnap and, and uh, like hold someone hostage and they're just like kind of so matter-of-factly like they're not panic kicking and stuff and they're just being like so logical and level-headed about it and uh yeah it's just it doesn't align with like what you're seeing happening on the screen at all yeah and i mean not like if you're the rare listener who's listening even though you haven't watched this movie it's not like a over-the-top comedic hokey like what right. are my glasses it's just like oh okay that's that's a late 60s early 70s woman who's just kidnapped somebody yeah it feels like entirely natural yeah yeah like that it, it is it is natural it's, it's very realistic while at the same time comedic yeah <laughs> Um, one of the things she said here when she's reading from her script that just like really s- hit me for some reason, she says, we will not waver no matter how much you beg. So please don't try because we all have feelings. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah, that's hilarious. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's good. Um, so the kidnapped woman, uh, Becker, sees a child in the room, and the grandmother is surprised that she can see him. And we learn that their ja- grandson, Jackson, has died, and their plan is to resurrect him, resurrect him by transferring his soul into this woman's unborn baby. That, that was also wild for me. Like, it, we're like five minutes into this movie, or five, five or ten minutes, and we've seen like an abduction, and now we've also kind of seen a child ghost. Uh, it's just like, I feel like everything is like kind of happening so quickly here. It moves fast while simultaneously kind of going slow and taking its time, too. Like Yeah. Yeah, it introduces things, like, very matter-of-factly, and it doesn't feel like... Uh, yeah, you're right. Like, it doesn't feel like it's rushed, but it's just, like, so many uh, things you wouldn't expect happening already. Right, right. I think at this point in the movie, at least so far, it's still very, like, calm and steady. Even yeah, if it's hitting I, you with, with interesting new stuff pretty exactly, quickly. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, the calmness is so weird. Yeah. Um, and there's some background info doled out in the ne- this first 30 minutes of the film. We learn that Becker, the pregnant woman that they've kidnapped, is a patient of Henry's who's a doctor. She's had an unplanned pregnancy and doesn't seem to have really many close friends or family. And for that reason, has become the perfect target for Audrey and Henry. We learn that they have been dabbling in Satanism with this group that they meet at their local library, <laughs> which is also hilarious, but probably realistic, too. You think you think the uh, satanic groups and cults like meet at the library? 
Yeah, I think so. I think uh, Satanism is a lot more mundane than the average person thinks. Sure. <laughs> yeah. I love that. Yeah, like they're arguing about like the snacks and who brought the snacks this time and when to eat them. It's, yeah. It's funny. <laughs> yeah. Um, but we also learned that like some of it is, they've been kind of effective. They have this really old book and they show that they have figured out how to bring a dead crow to life. So it kind of communicates to you right away like okay this isn't going to be a movie about the silly folly of these grandparents who believe crazy stuff this is actually real yeah like some supernatural stuff's happening yeah yeah so at about the 30 minute mark they do this they perform the reverse exorcism by reading from this book and a giant crow monster appears with a lantern um what did you think of this ghoul creepy man uh like obviously not like uh, overdone or anything and uh, uh yeah yeah some dude in a, a, a costume so it's like a pretty practical kind of uh, display but i thought like in the setting it felt like pretty creepy and given like this is the first kind of monster ghost we're seeing uh i, I was into it what, what did you think i agree man i thought it was well done it was a creative creative appearance and unusual and uh it looked good yeah, I you know I, I wasn't one hundred percent sure it was a crow, but you, you think like it had the head of a crow? That was like what they were going for. I don't know either. Maybe I had just seen a crow, so that was what was no, at think, the top of my mind. Yeah, I, I couldn't tell if like uh, you know like with babies, you think of like storks and stuff. If they were like trying to play uh, something off of that, but yeah, I, th- I think you might be right because yeah, they they did, did just bring a crow back to life, so it's entirely possible that's what it was. And they think, at least, that they've transferred Jackson into the baby. Audrey listens to Becker's belly with a stethoscope and says, I know my grandson's heartbeat. Yeah. The next morning after all this happened, Hen- after all this happens, Henry wakes up in bed and sees a woman who he believes to be Audrey uh, standing at the sink in their bedroom near the bathroom. And we hear her like flossing her teeth. But his wife calls him from downstairs. So we're like, oh, wait shit who's that and this woman turns around all we see is her feet as she turns around we hear this flossing and see teeth start to like tinkle trinket what's the word tinkle yeah (laughs) trickle like trickling (laughs) they're just like falling onto this tile like bouncing around her feet as she slowly approaches uh, and the camera just hangs on down there by her feet for a while. Yeah. And eventually it shows her face and she's just got this weird, big, bloody, smiling mouth as she flosses furiously with blood everywhere, just popping her teeth out of her mouth, like sawing oh, her God. teeth out of her mouth. Yeah. This I, this has to be like one of the most disturbing visuals we've come across, like uh, in, at least like in the last few movies, right? It is certainly one of the creepier things I've seen in a horror movie in a while. Yeah. Yeah. Damn. To me, it was reminiscent of Evil Dead, the Evil Dead remake, when you hear that one character just basically sawing on her own flesh well before we see anything. Oh, yeah, right, right. You hear the sound of it, right? Yeah, f- that's that's so effective. Yeah, I think in a lesser movie, this would have like taken less time. It would have happened faster. They mm-hmm. would have had less of a steady hand with the camera work and had a handful more of like quick edits or cuts to try to force some sense of intensity yeah yeah i think you're right but again i think the like calm approach to the the direction and the cinematography just makes it all the more haunting here it does it does yeah 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 especially the way you described it like how you just see the feet and the teeth uh and you're just hearing that sound uh yeah that really preps you and then um yeah just so gross yeah 
Um, later on, Audrey hears the doorbell ring and there's a trick-or-treater in a ghost costume, even though it's not Halloween. And it ends up being this scene where this trick-or-treater's in the house and chasing her around in this ghost costume. And it's become clear at this point that they're now being plagued by some sort of ghosts. Did um, you find this ghost one scary? Uh, sure, yeah. I think just a basic white sheet over somebody is is still a classically scary to me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Exactly, it is a classic. Uh, and then, like, it comes up the elevator and like it grows and it gets like pretty huge, right? Yeah, yeah. It it grows and its voice gets deeper. Yeah, yeah. That was that was freaky. Um, and Becker sees a ghost too. This contortionist dude comes out from under her bed with like a plastic bag over his head. He's he's pretty creepy. Yeah, this guy was so weird. I was confused. I was wondering if like they had killed someone earlier on and this was their body coming out. But uh, it sounds like these were all just like ghosts who were popping out because of the ritual, right? Yeah, it, it gets a bit confusing here. Um, it, it is explained soon. Okay. Um, which I'll get to, but before we hit that, in addition to these ghosts, we've got two other complications as well. There's a detective who shows up at Henry's office asking questions about the disappearance of Miss Becker. And they're like, snowblower guy who cleans their driveway just keeps coming back even though they've insisted to him that they don't need him for a while Mm -hmm. and he does something to insinuate that he's maybe become possessed or something right before he sticks his head into his snowblower and I think we see what I believe is a tooth shoot out of the snowblower and get lodged in the glass of their front door oh that was a tooth i think so but i'm not sure again that, i had just seen teeth so maybe it was at the top of my head yeah that makes sense because it doesn't like kind of crack and like get stuck in the window yeah 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 i guess that would be a tooth damn i couldn't help but wonder why they were so paranoid about him in the first place considering they had totally soundproofed the room that becker was in and she was tied to the bed yeah, they were like so trying really hard to drive him away like multiple times, and yeah, you think it would have been okay for him to clean the driveway, right? Right. But I don't know. Maybe this was just a good opportunity to have someone put their head in a snowblower. <laughs> you can't pass too many of those up, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so while Henry's trying to clean up this mess and mess and ditch this body, I don't know, somewhere down the road or a few miles away in some woods, he gets a call from the detective who wants to meet him, and she insists that they do so at his house. And when he gets home, the detective is there. She's got his wife on the floor, and she's pointing a gun at him as he enters the bedroom that Becker is in. And she's like, you know, freeze, like you're under arrest. Becker's going nuts on the bed, and the detective turns to her, and she's like, calm down, ma'am. Or calm down, ma'am. I've got everything under control. See? And she takes the gun and shoots herself in the head. Was that shocking for you? It was shocking and effective. I mean, it was essentially the snowblower guy again. It's just like yeah. two people in their lives who have now been kind of possessed and killed themselves. Yeah, yeah. Were you on board with this? Was this too bonkers? Was it just the right amount of bonkers? Uh, it was making sense to me because you kind of get the sense that there is something uh, in the house that's like possessing any like intruders and almost kind of like protecting them in terms of what they're trying to do, but also kind of messing with them. So I, yeah, I was, I was pretty shocked and uh, the, the way they even like shot this scene and like how quick and like kind of real time it happens was pretty cool. But uh, yeah, I was, I was on board with it. What, what about you? Yeah. I mean, I thought it was just the right amount of crazy, kept things engaging and scary. Um, yeah. And yeah, I think, you know, just, just that based on the fact that they're trying to take a soul and put it into another soul that, that things are now possessing other people somehow. Right. 
Yeah, and the house like isn't really a safe environment, maybe. Yeah, so they enlist the help of one of their Satanist pals to be like, what the hell's happening? It's this dude, Ian, and he tells them that they've summoned this demon who unlocks the gate between our world and the world of tormented souls. And yes, you can bring someone back this way, but it's not like an individual invitation to Jackson's soul only. They've essentially opened the gates to any demons who want to sneak their way into this world as long as they can find a host. Oh, that's kind of like the movie host. Remember, don't they get that lesson in that one, too, that once you open the portal, you never know what's going to come in? Yeah, I think so. Interesting. So he's basically like, you messed up, you didn't finish the ritual, but I'm willing to help you out, and I'll meet you at your house tomorrow. What And $10,000. Yeah, I think he brings that up once he gets to their house, right? Or maybe, uh, he, so. maybe he brings it up then. I, th- I thought, yeah, he kind of likes to say, and they, they don't really like, I, it seems like they, they don't really mind any kind of money payment here. He's he's a really interesting character, isn't he? Yeah, what did you think of him? I think some of the um, more critical reviews I found online cited him as one of the negatives. Interesting. Yeah, he was, there was like an element of like, a, for a movie that's been like so subtle so far to your point earlier, he was a little bit over the top uh, in his portrayal of like this guy who's like really in a cult. But almost, uh, I mean, like at points it was like funny, like how, like he was like pissed about like the leadership roles and like the the group and the community group and stuff. Uh, And so you kind of like, uh, some of it was like believable, but some of it was a little uh, more than uh, anticipated. So it felt a little bit out of place. But what did you think? Yeah, a little bit out of place. There was still a a bit of a nonchalantness to him that kind of matched the, yeah, these are just Satanists and this is what they're like. He was definitely more into the Satanism Mm-hmm. look and vibe but uh yeah he's like hardcore but we'll talk more about him later too because he he plays an important role mm-hmm. so they're all spending the night together in becker's room for some reason i think the night before ian is supposed to come and there's a moment where it's just becker and henry and we get some additional backstory as she's talking to him we learn that audrey the grandmother here was driving the car with their daughter and grandson jackson and she crashed the car. The daughter was horribly injured and wheelchair bound, and she eventually killed herself because she couldn't live with the sorrow of having lost her son. And this basically made Audrey desperate, um, and that led them to Satanism because they were willing to do, as the title suggests, anything for Jackson. Mm, um, right. But we learn Henry, even though Audrey's doing it for Jackson, Henry is kind of just doing it for Henry because he knows how much this has hurt her. Henry's doing it for Audrey, right? Yeah, what did I say? Henry's doing it for Henry. Yeah, Henry's doing it. Audrey's doing it for her grandson, Jackson, and Henry's doing it for Audrey. Right, okay. Yep. Um, And this is heavy to me because he talks about how Audrey would always fuss over Jackson in the car and that she was probably distracted by it. Oh. And I couldn't help but picture myself like driving, handing food back to my kids in the back seat and fidgeting with whatever they needed to calm them down back there. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's a very common uh, thing, right? Yeah. I just feel like nothing scares me more than a car accident that would cause my own family to be injured due to right. my own error. Like, right. And like that, that's true. Like real world nightmare. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that's really frightening. Yeah. To have that on you. Right. I can't remember if I've told you this story or, or this story on the podcast, but my my first son, we were driving him to his very first doctor's appointment. He was like a few days old and super tiny. He didn't even weigh five pounds when he was born. Mm-hmm. And we'd barely slept and we were so delirious. 
and we were driving and we saw like five groundhogs next mm-hmm. to the road. And I was like, hey, look at all those groundhoppers. Because <laughs> I was so delirious that I thought yeah. they were called groundhoppers. And we started cracking up about it. And I pulled like right in front of a car and almost got in like a serious accident. Oh, man. Yeah. yeah. And that was just like such a like sobering experience. We're just like, oh, my gosh. Like, I'm responsible <laughs> for this kid's life. And like, yeah, I need sleep to drive. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's that's that was kind of shit out of me too, man. That's like a lot of weight uh, on your shoulders, and like the the threat of like losing that and like being responsible for it. Uh, I yeah, I, I kind of felt like that part was very believable about this, like the emotional uh, weight of like what they were carrying and like driving them to these actions. Yeah, yeah, and car accidents seem to really be a theme for for these horror movies with a uh, background of tragedy. Yeah, I mean they're so common too, right? They really are, man. I mean it's it's terrifying how common they are. Is still like the number one uh, cause of death in the U.S. car accidents, or was that? I think uh, it's the number one cause of accidental deaths. Okay. Yeah. Not totally sure though. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I hear you. that. That's so scary, and you remember those kind of things. Yeah. Close, close calls. So anyway, uh, while they're all in this room, like spending the night together before. Ian comes the next day. We see the detective walk into the room again and shoot herself in the head again. Like repeatedly, right? She just keeps doing it. Like they insinuate that she's done it all night. And the next morning when Ian gets there, she just keeps walking in there and doing it over and over again. Yeah. She's like on a loop or something. How did you feel about the repetitive of this repetitiveness of it? Did you, were you here for it? Yeah, like I, I feel like it was kind of like nonsensical enough where like uh, that's kind of what you want in, in like something that's haunted, like something that doesn't make sense and how like kind of she was just going through the motions of like uh, kept shooting herself, I thought felt pretty scary. What, what did you think? Yeah, I've definitely talked about it on the podcast before, but I am I love relentlessness in a horror movie and I always sure. bring up Evil Dead when I say relentlessness and yeah, I mean, why not just keep having her do it over and over again? It's terrifying and irritating, yeah. like irritating in all the right ways. Yeah, yeah, right. I, I think that applies to like the flossing woman too. Like it's just uh, someone going at it too hard and like just going to the extreme and, and not stopping. Like that's so scary. Yeah, like even and even after her walking in, shooting herself stops being s- scary. There's just some part of you that's just like, please stop it. Yeah, I know. <laughs> but like in a good way. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, in a fun way. <laughs> All right, so Ian is here at their house. He's helping them finish the ceremony, and it's clear that he means business. While they're doing the ceremony, Henry gets a phone call from one of their other Satanist buddies who tells them that she just learned that Ian killed his own mother that morning. So this is kind of meant to make us realize that Ian is not only now behind the helm of this ritual, but he is pretty fucked up Yeah, and willing to do th- anything. How did you take this? Like, was Ian, uh, did he get possessed and that's why, like, he killed his mother? Or he was just, like, from the beginning, this, like, really diehard guy uh, who was just, like, looking for an excuse to kill his mother and become uh, the, the this guy, I guess? Yeah, I think from the beginning, he was just a, a bad egg. Okay, got it. Um, and during this ceremony, Becker, who has stashed a piece of broken glass from her shattered water glass and, and gotten at least one of her hands loose in an earlier scene grabs Audrey and holds the the shattered glass to her throat 
asking Henry to undo her restraints. And of course, Henry, who we've just learned has done all this just for Audrey, mm-hmm. uh, starts to do so. He's he's unlocking her restraints, and Ian is pissed at him. He knocks Henry out of the way and restrains Becker again. He then walks up to Audrey and just stabs her in the stomach. And when he does that, he says, mother's a mother. Mm-hmm. Do you know what that means? Well, I think the whole point of this uh, ritual was to sacrifice a mother to bring the child in. And the whole thing was they were going to kill Becker. Uh, but he kind of saw an easier way, like he can just kill um, uh, the, the mother here, uh, Audrey. And uh, it would be the same thing, right? Okay. All right. That's what I kind of thought, but that that makes sense. Yeah, that's, that was my assumption. Um, so Ian now completes the ceremony and this ghost slash demon entity who looks like an escapee from a mental institution grabs Ian and drags him out of the room. Mm-hmm. Becker gets free. Henry spits out blood, falls to the floor, and a demon starts crawling out of him. The bendy guy comes out from under the bed again and starts attacking Becker. She flees and runs out of there, goes downstairs, and basically encounters every ghost or entity that we've seen throughout the movie so far, like while she's downstairs in this chaotic escape scene, like the flossing lady, the detective, snowplow guy, um, the little ghost, whatever. Yep. And she finally makes it to the car and she sees Jackson up in the window of the bedroom being lifted up by what I assume is this demon that we saw come out of Henry, who is supposedly based on an interview with the director, an eternally pregnant demon. Hmm. Oh, interesting. Okay. So then she's driving down the road, Becker is, and she stops as she sees this demon kind of crossing the road ahead of her. And then she feels something in her stomach and looks down. And that's essentially how the movie ends. We, I assume that maybe meant that they made the transfer and Jackson was in there now. What did you think of that? Yeah, it was, it was really vague. Uh, I, I couldn't understand. I mean, I didn't realize uh, that the, the demon that you see pick up Jackson is the same one that you see her uh, see on the road uh, at the at the end uh, crossing the street. But um, yeah, I mean, the way you described it, that, that makes sense that like she sees that demon and looks down at her belly. It kind of means that, uh, yeah, I would assume it means that like something's happened. I, I thought what it meant was that she was always going to be kind of stalked by this like uh, de- demonic entity or whatever. Um, and maybe she was just kind of reflecting on her baby or something, but I, I like your ending explanation a lot better. Yeah, I wasn't really sure, because, I mean, I thought you see the demon kind of pick up Jackson in the window. Yeah. And right. then when you see the demon on the road, Jackson's not with it. So yeah, I thought maybe that was what happened, but I'm honestly just not sure at all. That makes a lot of sense. One article I read, though, uh, said that it was Jackson's grandma picking him up from that window, um, but I, I don't know how they would have known because yeah, all you see are like arms picking him up, right? You don't really see much else. Oh, right. Like maybe they're together again. Maybe, yeah. But that's that seems like too happy of an ending. But also, that's not uh, truly what she wanted. Oh, uh, what do you mean? The the grandmother? She wanted Jackson to be alive again. She, yeah. When she was held basically at knife point, shard of glass instead of a knife, she told Henry to. St- not let Becker free and to keep going. She didn't care if she died because she wanted sure Jackson to be in this world again, I even see. if she wasn't in it. Yeah, yeah. But after she died, uh, you don't think that was like her, like kind of finally like reconciling with Jackson in like the afterlife? Hmm. I don't think so. I think we would have seen her if it was. 
I think so. Yeah, yeah. And, and given like how dark of a movie this is, it, it kind of it, that might be a little bit out of place. Yeah. So I I, I like your version. And yeah, that that uh, demon on the street that she sees uh, that does look like a pregnant demon, right? I thought so. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> what did, what did you, I mean? What did you think of this? And not only like what it was and what it meant, but like, are, are you going to take points away for this ending? It was kind of hard to decipher and maybe a yeah. little out of step with what the movie had been so far what, what what's your take i don't know like uh i i don't uh i didn't have too many issues with like the ambiguity of it like that was that's that's fine like and i feel like in a horror film uh it's okay to like it because then it opens up these discussions uh i i was wondering though if like that whole uh last kind of seance or whatever uh if it dragged on a bit because um yeah you had like multiple characters like dying or being like attacked and stuff um so I, I don't know, I had some mixed feelings on how, like, everything played out in that room. Um, I was, yeah, more mixed feelings about that versus, like, her getting away and then, like, seeing that demon and not knowing, like, what's happening or something. But uh, what, what about you? What, what did you think? I had a feeling that something didn't work about this scene, and I actually, it's interesting to hear you say you thought it was dragged out, because I almost felt it was a little bit rushed. Oh, really? Um, yeah. It, I don't quite know what was wrong with it, but something to me seemed a little wrong with it. <laughs> it. Maybe it was just the fact that Ian, who really wasn't much of a character at all before this, mm-hmm. ends up playing such a central role. Like he completes the ritual, he kills Audrey. Um, like he's such a big deal in it. And. Uh, maybe that felt a little forced or out of place also he's carried away by a ghost that we've never seen before yeah um, that was kind of random right yeah so i just feel like there were a few jarring things that didn't quite add up um maybe maybe they added up but they weren't what we were used to seeing and then to see sure. henry get like he there's some almost visual effects here where maybe they do sped up motion a bit mm-hmm. he's doing like this herky-jerky movement and the demon climbs out of him yeah right. we have no basis to believe that these demons climb out of people um right maybe they do and that's fine but it was just like that happening ian playing such a crucial role this yep. weird ghost who looked like a mental patient escapee like there were so many things here that we hadn't really had yeah. basis for yet that I think it was just a little bit of like whiplash or something like wait what's going on yeah and e- even that pregnant demon that you see crossing the street like uh, that, that that part is really confusing like what is that right yeah. I, I just feel like there was one too many things happening that we didn't fully grasp mm. yeah, um, yeah even this last minute phone call to be like Ian killed his mom like right did we really even need that like we know he's a satanist and he's been kind of a jerk the whole time yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, that that's really interesting. Uh, that that third act does kind of feel a, a bit scattered. Then, and uh, it, I I don't know. I, I guess going into it, you expect one thing, and then yeah, you're right. All these kind of random things start happening that you weren't really expecting, uh, and that aren't like really fully explained compared to like everything else that the movie has been doing up until that point. Yeah, like everything the, up until this point is like so logical, right? Sure. Yeah, to an extent, it, it seems to like follow the rules. I think yeah. it's just like later there's just a whole bunch of rules that you're like, oh, I guess I didn't know about these rules. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> like but even. I, oh, go ahead. I just feel like, but then on the other hand, what I love about demon movies sometimes is that they can be really chaotic. Like yeah, right. Um, right. And this ending certainly was chaotic, so it it did still work to a certain extent. Yeah, yeah, I think what you just described is, like, the chaos taking over. 
but do you feel like uh I, like i'm all about that chaos and like when when the demons come in like it should be chaotic was it like climatic enough like of what you would have expected uh like i know the whole movie is kind of subtle and underplayed and that works to its advantage for the most part but do you feel like uh in contrast like this scene was like uh like it was did it feel like a big build-up and like a big kind of emotional climax or anything for you I guess it wasn't really because you, as much as you want to see Becker escape, um, and I've seen this talked about a lot, especially in interviews with the director, like, even though the Henry and Audrey are your antagonists, they're kind of your main characters too, so yeah. you don't want things to go well for them necessarily, but um, you don't yeah. necessarily want them to see them meet their end without some sort of closure, and sure, it felt like there wasn't a whole lot of closure there. Um Audrey dies pretty quickly and Henry, you know, he tells Becker to run and like ask her to forgive them. Um, Right. Maybe that was a bit more closure for his character than Audrey had, but yeah, it it was kind of a a quick collapse of, of what they had been working to build. Yeah. Yeah. Like this only has been building up and then it all kind of just like everyone just kind of kills each other. Yeah. And I mean, they were playing with fire, so maybe it's a fitting end to have it just all go to shit real quick unceremoniously. But yeah. Yeah. I mean, mean, two things that I think are really interesting uh, that that you're right, like on the narrative piece, like I feel like a traditional movie would have been the whole movie through like Becker's lens as like the captive and the victim. And you're kind of, you know, which character to side with and you're kind of against the enemies. But I, I thought that one thing this movie thought uh, tried to do, which might have been like too uh, big, is like yeah, give so much like depth and uh, spend so much time with like each character in a way, because uh, like there were I, I don't feel like there are too many throwaway characters. I mean, I, I know we talked about Ian maybe being a bit over the top, but uh, yeah, it was it was kind of just a hard dynamic, like who's the victim here, who's the good guy, the bad guy, that kind of thing, which I, it makes it hard in a horror movie to know like who the uh, like what to be scared of, right? Yeah, it's fun to blur the lines a bit. Because, yeah, yeah, a lot of the things you're scared of are the the demons and ghosts scaring the antagonists. <laughs> right, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and, and, and yeah, you are, you are kind of, like, rooting for them a little bit. And, and you can, I don't know, maybe you kind of, like, uh, align with, like, their grief and, like, what they're going through emotionally. So that's, that's a hard one. Yeah, um, I mean, and you get shots of them, just like you would in any movie with two likable main characters, like, climbing into bed at night being like, oh, we're in over our heads. Yeah. <laughs> I know, I know. It's it's hard not to like love them, right? They're very right. likable, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, that, I I I thought that part was great, but it also makes it kind of uh, c- confusing, maybe uh, for me. But did, did you feel that way too? I thought that that uh, rather than confusing, I thought complicated in a good way, complex. And mm, good. So you appreciated that kind of uh, like it being with like different characters and not rooting for one specifically. Yeah, I liked that a lot, and I didn't feel like Becker almost ended up being kind of a smaller role, like especially small, like you said, compared to most horror movies where the whole movie would be from her perspective. But I don't feel like she was completely unfleshed out. I think they did her justice as well as yeah. a character. They did, and yeah, I appreciated that. Like, they, they could have easily just uh, let her be some random person, but those, like, the background scenes of her, her conversations with uh, Aubrey and Henry, or Audrey and Henry, like, uh, yeah, those were all, like, very telling. Yeah, I think they did a good job with the dialogue between Audrey and Henry, uh, with her and Audrey and Henry, each of them yeah. separately, developing um, not only Becker, but using her as a way to develop Audrey and Henry more, too. Like, yeah. She's trying to kind of talk her way out of it with Henry at some point towards the end. And he says, you can't win a moral argument with me. I've made a deal with the devil. 
And yeah. it was just kind of like a powerful yet simple line and just really made you understand Henry a bit more too, as, as that whole scene did. Yeah. Um, so that was cool. There, it was just a lot of smart, smart yet simple dialogue in this movie. Yeah. And I feel like it goes a long way for sure. Yeah. That helps. Uh, I loved the cinematography throughout. Like I already said, I feel like it's just calmer than in so many movies of this genre. It didn't, it wasn't mm-hmm. manic with the editing, um, or the camera movement. It was all pretty calm and steady and it just made everything more eerie and it, it worked to their advantage. Yeah, it really did. The whole thing kind of had like an even pacing approach to it. You never felt like it, something was being like slammed in your face or something. Right. Uh, which, yeah, you're right. I mean, it made it like a lot more creepier and eerie. There weren't really jump scares. Yeah, I know, I know. But like some uh, obviously pretty haunting visuals, though, that I think stick with you. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that I, I know we talked about this at the beginning, that the house was like such a great setting, too. A really great setting. And it makes sense. The director was talking about how they had all the time in the world to get comfortable with the house and block out how the scenes would happen, where things would happen, and how to shoot it, because it was the writer's house. So <laughs> that definitely worked yeah. to their advantage. They had all the time in the world with the set. Yeah, 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 that really helps. And you could tell they use it like to their advantage really well. Yeah. Uh, did you see the, the three ghosts that you mentioned, the hidden ones? I think I saw one in a mirror, as I said, but oh, okay. I didn't know until afterwards that I should have been looking. Yeah, yeah. Uh, one thing, I, don't, I can't tell what this was. On the wall of the room that they had Becker tied up in, there was like a mask, uh, a ghost mask on the wall, or some kind of mask on the wall. And most of the movie was tilted, but then towards the end it was like straight. Did, did you notice that? Oh, I didn't notice the difference in its angle. I noticed the mask, but I didn't know it, cha- it changed. Yeah, yeah. That was like a, kind of a creepy room. Yeah, it um, was. Did the, did the lack of like a explanation on the ending or closure bother you at all? Um, I don't think the open-endedness bothered me as much as the, um, kind of scattershot nature of it. Yeah. A lot happening that was, you know, like we already described. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. Yeah, I feel like personally I would have appreciated a little little bit more, uh, Hollywood at the end, unfortunately. Uh, just to kind of like, uh, because, yes, to your point, like so much of the movie is like nice and even and creepy and stuff. And I just like would have loved like some really uh, haunting, like scary finale. But I I think the movie kind of like sticks with the the original tone throughout, uh, which I don't know. I I guess people could like or not like. Sure. Yeah. I'm not sure if I would have wanted it to go that route, but. uh, The Hollywood route? Yeah. Strings? (laughs) It's like the two alternate endings to uh, The Descent. You. Oh, yeah. You, you want that ending that I didn't like. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm a sucker for those, man. <laughs> uh, all right, man. Well, uh, zero to five teeth dropping to the floor. What do you give this? Uh, you know, I think I originally had it as a three and a half just because uh, the ending wasn't as climatic as I would have liked. But I think in talking through it with you, there's like enough like great things going on here between like the dark comedy throughout, the the subtle uh, way they played like the horror, the, the visuals, the, the characters were great and the dialogue was awesome. Um, and yeah, despite the ending, I still feel like it was a, like a really strong and original movie. So uh, Michael, with the, did you say teeth dropping out? Is that the thing? Yeah, teeth, teeth hitting the floor. Oh, yeah. Four uh, teeth hitting the floor. How about you? All right. After I was done with the movie, I wrote down 4.5 teeth wow. hitting the floor. Yeah. I rewatched the ending tonight and really noticed the uh, 
I don't know, the lack, the, the messiness of it. Um, sure. So I was tempted to drop it down to a four, but I'm going to stick with 4.5. Cool. Yeah. Damn, that's good. Yeah. So uh, yeah, average of 4.25 from us. Does that bump any of your uh, best of 2020 films? I, I think your top one was The Hunt. Is that right? Yeah, I gave The Hunt a five. So that still, still sits atop the list, but this is probably a number two or number three slot. Yeah, yeah, same. I think I'd put this close to host. I just love a great, like, demons or supernatural movie that that really is legitimately scary and is a well-rounded movie on the whole as well. Those seem to be yeah. rare, so. Those are rare, yeah, yeah. And uh, I, I, I love this one, and all, all the effects looked great, too, and yeah, de- demons are a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah, the special effects did look really good, and those were done by, oh, what's her name? Carly Morse, mm-hmm. and she worked on... Uh, She's done work on Becky from last year, what we do in the Shadows TV series, and the oh, Tall cool. Grass. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, I imagine we'll keep seeing her name more and more, too. Yeah, yeah. Awesome work. Yeah. Uh, cool. Well, we gave it a 4.25, our ratings combined. Great cinematography. We like the dark notes of comedy, and uh, pretty creepy. Yep. So, uh, yeah, I guess that wraps up our discussion on anything for Jackson. Uh, if you liked it, please feel free to give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. That helps other people find our show, and we really appreciate it. You can connect with us at horrormovieclub.com. Just go to the social links drop down, and you'll find Facebook and Twitter where we are announcing what movie we'll be covering next week. There's also a link in that social links drop down for our Discord server where you can come hang out with us and a bunch of other cool people who are talking about movies and horror movies uh, pretty regularly. Always a great conversation going on there. Uh, If you want to support the show, you can become a Patreon subscriber and gain some access to bonus content. You can do that at patreon.com slash horrormovieclub or go to our website horrormovieclub.com and just click on the Patreon button. Our logo is done by Amy Mae Popart. Oh, I forgot to mention we have a coaster set available now curated by us and Amy Mae Popart with some of our uh, favorite characters from our favorite horror movies. And one of those coasters is also our full logo as it appears on our website. So go to Etsy.com and search Amy May Pop Art to find that. And uh, until next time, if you're attempting a reverse exorcism, whatever you do, don't ask Ian for help. <laughs> Fuck that guy. <laughs> Fuck that guy. <laughs>